Grand Canyon, where hidden forces shape our ideas, beliefs, and experience. Join us as we uncover the stories between the colorful walls and add your voice for what happens next at Grand Canyon. In the entire history of our planet, 107 billion people have set foot on it. Of them, in just one year, 6 million come to Grand Canyon. But only 12 people, 12, have ever left footprints on another world. So, all of you listening, I don't know if you realize, but before astronauts left those big boot tracks up on the moon, those same feet walked to the bottom of Grand Canyon. That's like a nine mile walk, or 14, or, or seven. seven. It, it just depends on the trail. <laughs> <laughs> In this episode, we are going to retrace some of these footsteps with a couple people we've met along our own journey in exploring the Apollo astronauts and their time here at Grand Canyon. We're going to hear from historians, some of our own people that we've met at the bottom of the Grand Canyon on their own hikes across, and we might even just hear from a future astronaut that might land on another planet in their lifetime. And most importantly, you'll hear from a moonwalker themselves, one of 12 to walk on the moon. See, okay, this is right where Neil Armstrong stood. And what was he thinking? You know, he didn't even know he was going to be the first person on the moon. This is years before his first flight. And yet this is where his preparation was happening. And you know, what was he thinking as he was gazing across the canyon and perhaps up into the heavens? Um, maybe the same thing that so many of us think about the grandeur of it all. This is Kevin Schindler. He is a historian at Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, the same observatory where they discovered Pluto. Kevin is describing Neil not looking over the craters of the moon, but looking into the bottoms of Grand Canyon. Neil Armstrong sits on the edge of the canyon, wearing his classic red baseball cap. His field notebook lies forgotten to the side as his gaze is lost in the bottom of the canyon. I've been able to um, not just hike into the canyon, but to retrace where a lot of those astronauts went um, by helping me find um, the locations of several pictures. We have a few dozen pictures of the astronauts during those hikes, and I wanted to try, to try to recreate where those pictures were taken. I first met Kevin, and I remember it was the centennial year at Grand Canyon, and here in the park, we were getting ready to celebrate the big 100th birthday. In my email inbox, I get this letter saying, hey, did you realize it's also the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions? And why don't we celebrate how much Grand Canyon was a part of humans going up to the moon? You know, the astronauts were on a mission. Um, as When we look back at going to the moon, 
you know, we can remember the inspiration they gave us and the science we learned and such. But the reason they were going initially was to beat the Russians. It was all part of the Cold War and um, and that President Kennedy in the early 1960s um, declared that we were going to go as a country, go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. And so these astronauts were brought on to do this very patriotic, um, very, in a lot of ways, military-minded activity. We got to get the Rus- we got to beat the Russians there. And so, as we're developing the missions, a lot of scientists said, if we're going to go to the moon and plant a flag and thumb our nose at the Russians, and that's all we do, that's a wasted opportunity. We should do science. We should take advantage of that opportunity and explore that world. Going to the moon is not so different from going on a trip to Grand Canyon or your next exploration. And it makes me think, why are we exploring? How can we bring something useful back to the people at home? You know, think about the astronauts. They were hired to beat the Russians. We're gonna get to the moon first. What does picking up rocks have to do with beating the Russians? And so the geologists realized this, realized, you know, we need to inspire the astronauts to want to learn geology. Melissa, you and I have taught a lot of kids coming to take field trips at Grand Canyon. Who do you think would be more excited to learn about rocks? Your third graders or a fighter pilot with a crew cut and military background? Definitely the third graders. The astronauts were survival specialists, just focused on getting to the moon and back alive. Well, now NASA has a big ask for them, to train their brains in a new way, to learn to be scientists. Just like our third graders. These guys didn't have much geology. Um, In most cases, they didn't have any geology training. And so their early training in geology was was fundamental, was basic. It wasn't trying to um, find a place that had similar rocks of exactly where they'd be going on the moon. It was more of just learning to think like a geologist, learning how to look at rocks and interpret the story that they tell. And and so they needed, they needed a geology classroom, you know, to learn how to identify different types of rocks and how they're formed and, and, and how, to, how to know, okay, this, this, is, this type of rock is a lot different than that one. Um, you know, when they go to the moon, they want to collect as many different types of rocks as possible, so they have to be able to, uh, to know the difference. And as I learned more, I found that they came to northern Arizona um, initially to, to just learn basic geology, um, going to the meteor crater and Sunset Crater, 
Um, and then I and then I got really interested and learned that um, all the Apollo astronauts trained in northern Arizona in preparation for the moon missions. The astronauts trained at the Grand Canyon, and the Grand Canyon is one of my favorite places in the world. Kevin's research led him to NASA, and at NASA he found historic photographs of people like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on field trips at the bottom of Grand Canyon. Kevin wrote a book, an Images of America series about their northern Arizona space training, and then he decided it was time to pack his own backpack and follow the astronauts' footsteps into Grand Canyon. Uh, the people who did that work and retrace their steps, it's a lot more fun. I mean, you can really, you can really feel it more. I mean, it's neat to read about it, you know, in the living room, you know, under a lamp at night reading a book. Um, but it's, it's a different experience hiking down and making the same stops and having the same, you know, breathing problems coming up and, you know, really envisioning what, you know, what they were seeing. Kevin met Melissa and I on the trails, and he had the historic photographs from NASA in his hands. He would hold them up and try to match them to the brilliant, colorful landscapes that hikers see in Grand Canyon. When it matched up, it was this amazing moment where we realized we were probably standing at the same place where Neil Armstrong was standing at. And then a later group of astronauts that were named after that uh, visited the canyon in 1966. And they all kind of followed the same pattern. They were there essentially two days. So on one day, they would dip to the canyon and start off at the Yavapai Geology Museum. So geologists would meet them and, and uh, do an overview of the, of the canyon. And then they would go to South Kaibab Trail um, at the trailhead, and they broke up into groups. So you would have two or three astronauts um, with one geologist. And every few minutes, one of the groups would start hiking down the trail. And as they hiked down the trail, the geologists would describe what they're seeing. You know, the what types of rocks, um, interpret what the rock layers meant, you know, tell the story of the rocks. One of my favorite pictures shows the astronauts eating lunch at the fossil fern exhibit on the South Kaibab Trail. And this exhibit shows fern fossils from millions of years ago. And it might be why the astronauts joked when they were landing that they had found fossils on the moon. But on that field trip, the astronauts were learning important skills, like how to take rock samples how to use overhead maps to navigate an unknown landscape. The spot where they were having their picnic is where a lot of hikers are also looking at maps, learning to navigate the landscapes of Grand Canyon. You know, they're learning to be geologists. And so if you look at some of these pictures, they're carrying um, field notebooks where you, you know, describe your observations. They have maps so that they can learn geology mapping. 
and they can look at layers of rocks and describe what they're seeing and map it out um, to where it will be useful um, to other people. Um, they have they have geology hammers, which normally at the Grand Canyon we would not do, but they had special permission to um, you know collect some rocks um, like they're going to be doing on the moon. They had hand lenses to look at minerals up close, which they wouldn't do so much on the moon because it's kind of hard to hold a hand lens um, next to your space helmet and focus in. One of the first things they would do in landing on the moon is to survey what they're looking at. Hey, it sure ain't flat, John. Look at the rocks, the layers, and the any mountains or valleys. Wow, there's that ridge to the north. And describe what they're seeing. Charlie's got nothing but a ridge to look at. All we got to do is jump out the hatch and we got plenty of rocks. That sounds beautiful, John. Wish I were there. The voices you just heard are of John Young and Charlie Duke, Apollo 16 astronauts, as they gazed out to the moon for the first time. Melissa and I had the great honor of meeting Charlie Duke at the Flagstaff Festival of Science. Charlie Duke is a former astronaut. As the lunar module pilot of Apollo 16 in 1972, he became the youngest person at 36 years old to walk on the moon. We asked Charlie Duke, almost 50 years later, if there were any similarities between the moon and Grand Canyon. Uh, there was uh, about zero. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, moon is, was mostly volcanic, uh -huh. and the Grand Canyon is mostly sedimentary rocks. And uh, as far as I know, there's been no water on the moon in mass quantities, and so there's no sedimentary rocks. Uh, but the moon does have layering because it's been volcanic and have been erupting like up here. Uh, so you see different layers and different stratus with different uh, volcanic eruptions. And uh, you see that in the side of the big craters. Uh, and the one we, the biggest we visited was 500 meters across. And so you could stand on this, let's see, it would be the south, uh, southeast side uh, southwest side and look across the, the crater and you could see in the crater uh, different flows. Seeing those flows was similar to learning to identify that we learned how to identify the various stratus in the Grand Canyon. But uh, I got excited about Flagstaff. I loved the area. I loved the instructors at uh, astrogeology. I think they called it the lab or something anyway. And I uh, met the people out there and they were so enthusiastic and they got me so excited about geology. And I loved it. Uh, and we had, on a, for six years, we had a trip every month somewhere uh, for three or four days in the field. And uh, a lot of it was in Arizona. I went to Media Crater, Ajo, and uh, down south across the border, and uh, Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon and the moon may have different rocks, but it sounds like Charlie really did learn to see like a geologist. And I saw this in videos of him trying to collect moon samples, but in zero G that often meant a backflip or two. The science he and the other astronauts learned allowed them to expand our knowledge of the universe. You know, the rocks that they were visiting at the bottom of the canyon are about 1.8 billion years old. 
But the Trinity rock, the moon rocks they collected on the moon are four and a half billion, just a little bit younger than our planet. And with those rocks, we realized that maybe another planetoid hit planet Earth and the moon is actually a part of our crust. That knowledge allowed them to bring something useful back home. They expanded our knowledge of the solar system. It was a real honor to meet Charlie Duke and hear more about what it was like for them going down into the bottom of the canyon. Well, Kevin has met a lot of astronauts and a big part of the hikes into the canyon were about these shared experiences that he found with them. Um, I don't know, I've been to the bottom of the canyon a couple dozen times or so maybe. And and it is interesting how some of your experiences overlap a little bit. Um, for me, one of the most, I guess, obvious and dramatic ones is also sort of comical in that my first time in the Grand Canyon when I was in college uh, more than a few months ago, um, I woke up in the middle of the night while camping at um, Phantom Ranch and a skunk was sniffing me. And as I was doing research about the astronauts going to the Grand Canyon um, and interviewing Charlie Duke, learned about his experience of skunks um, fighting over a sleeping bag. Did you finally get to meet the skunk that bothered him? No. <laughs> I didn't get to the bottom. We went down but, the north side. Oh, fine. Yeah, we came down from the north side. We didn't get to the bottom, but we came down that trail to yeah. <laughs> On the way back out from our trip down, we walked down, and then yeah, some of us just said, I'm, okay. I'm riding back out of here. <laughs> when you look up at all the challenges to get out of the canyon, the vertical mile of climb ahead. It's a crucible for even the most fit of hikers and runners. Astronauts in peak physical condition may want an easy way out too. Um, but a few of them, especially the, you know, really quintessential type A personalities like Alan Shepard, um, who was the first American to go in space years before these trips, um, he would not ride a mule. He was not only going to be the first, he was not only going to hike out the canyon, but he was going to be the first one to go out. Um, there's a reason why he was the first American in space. He was driven, type A, didn't want to be beaten. Um, so others like Neil Armstrong were just fine to ride a mule. And Neil Armstrong later said in his life something to the effect, you know, I only have so many heartbeats, I don't want to waste them on exercise. Going into space was a big investment, more than just an astronaut heartbeat. I was curious about who benefited from all the work that went into getting them up there. You know, while you, you may or may not agree with the reason we went, you can look back and say, you know, we humans, when we get a common goal and work together, we can achieve amazing things. You know, only 12 people walked on the moon. And so if they're the only ones to benefit, we sure spend a lot of money <laughs> for 12 people. And so, you know, to me, um, the benefit is, is it was life altering. 
Um, you know, it's, it's funny, like we talked about, the reason we went to the moon was, was political. I mean, there's no way Congress would ever, ever approved of all that money if there wasn't a perceived threat at the time. Um, we were in the middle of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and we had to, it was perceived threat. We had to get out there and show our superiority. If, if the challenge was, let's go out there to explore and do science, um, it never would have happened, um, or not, not how it did, because, you know, this was against so much happening on Earth, that money could be used for a lot of good things on Earth. You know, there are people starving, um, homeless people, um, but because it was perceived threat, um, while, while those issues on Earth were important, it was, you know, perceived by leaders that we must get out there. It's really humbling that 50 years ago, millions of people gathered around TV screens to watch someone go to the moon. And now our leaders are pointing towards going to Mars. And as we think about expanding as galactic humans, each and every one of us can ask, well, what makes it worth it? What are the costs? What are the benefits? The amount of money we spend, is that better used for things here on Earth? Um, and this is something that goes back to Apollo. You know, the country is crumbling. There's a, you know, civil unrest. There are riots. There are um, race riots. Um, it's an ugly time. Vietnam War is going on. And we're spending a gazillion dollars um, to try to get people to walk on another world. How is that helping us? How is that saving lives? How is that feeding people that are starving? And so that, I mean, that's always a question. I mean, I have answers for that, my own personal answers, but I think that's always something is, um, you know, if you spend money on anything, what are you getting out of it? Why are you doing it? And how do you qualify it as a success? Today, President Kennedy signed an authorization from Congress to spend $1,700,000,000 on our space program for the next fiscal year. That's $10 for every man, woman, and child in the nation. But fair enough for what is by far the greatest show on Earth, the dramatic race to the moon. How did the American public feel in the 1960s before the Apollo missions were successful? It surprised me to learn that according to Roger Lyoness, who was the former chief historian for NASA, that a majority of Americans in the 1960s did not believe Apollo was worth the cost. Many raised their voice in protest and spoke out for social justice. The night before Apollo 11's launch into space with Neil, Buzz, and Collins getting ready to go to the moon, Hundreds of people came to protest at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. They were people who had also marched with Martin Luther King Jr. in Washington. Their priority was addressing widespread suffering caused by poverty, and they called themselves the Poor People's Campaign. So in this picture, I see a couple of mules. They are being lined up by a few um, 
men in front of a large rocket and a bunch of palm trees. In this photo, they are using mules as a symbol of systemic poverty in the United States. It's crazy to compare that to here at Grand Canyon. Today, mules are a sign of luxury. You get to pay to take a mule ride down to the bottom instead of using your own two legs. Other protesters are standing in front of a lunar module and holding up high a sign that says, it takes $12 a day to feed an astronaut. We could feed a starving child with eight. The leader of the march, Ralph Albernathy, gave a moving speech in which he said, we may go on from this day to Mars and to Jupiter and even to the heavens beyond. But as long as racism, poverty, hunger, and war prevail upon the earth, we as a civilized nation have failed. Listening to what Americans felt back in the 1960s, I wanted to hear what people feel today, right here and right now. So we interviewed hikers and backpackers in Grand Canyon. We asked them that considering the problems we have on Earth today, should we be thinking about going back to outer space? Hi, my name is Jess. Uh, I believe that space exploration um, and sending humans out into space is really important. I believe that it will bring a whole new world, like literally, to our environment, to our um, perspective. I personally would love to become an astronaut, and just the thought of going out to space, um, possibly landing on a different planet, um, and different uh, solar systems even, like if that could be made possible, that's something that furthering space exploration can be made possible if you go further, you can know your boundaries and then surpass that even more. There's so much to the universe now and we only know so much of it and so space exploration will just further that knowledge. My name is Doug and I think that once our constitution is secure and we have our tax situation under control, that we should be able to spend some of that on space exploration. Because we have other technology that comes out of space exploration that benefits us, benefits here, us here on Earth. Hi, my name's Celia. Um, I think that space there's so much about space that we don't know. I think that's so intriguing to like, break beyond our boundaries and explore new environments, new species, new areas, and there's so much out there that we don't know about. But even more so, I think that exploring the seas and the oceans on this Earth, um, we've only explored like 90% of them. And so as much as there is about space that we don't know, there's even more so about the oceans. We only know like 90% of them. Um, so yes, I think that exploring 
the depths of everything that we don't know, whether that's space or the oceans, breaking new boundaries, putting footprints on places where there haven't been footprints or maybe fin marks if we're going down into the ocean. But yes, going into space, going down to the ocean, um, exploring new areas, 100%, let's do it. The voice of every living being matters, and we have the opportunity to speak out for the values we care about at home, whether that's planet Earth or where we go from here. It is time to talk to someone who, since three years old, has committed her life to going to Mars a spokesperson for the Mars generation. Alyssa Carson has a long list of accomplishments. Alyssa is the youngest person to graduate from the Advanced Space Academy. She has her pilot's license and got her rocket license before her driver's permit. She is now the youngest person on the planet to be certified to go into suborbital space. In the interview, we dive deep into what the future of space exploration could look like. But I wanted to hear from Alyssa. Is space exploration worth the cost? Yeah, you know, first of all, um, I would say that I feel like a lot of people, when they think about how much money goes into the space program and goes into building rockets and sending astronauts to space, um, there's a lot of other things that kind of go into that as well. So during the Apollo days, having that space program and having the Apollo missions, that employed 400,000 Americans, which are jobs that weren't necessarily filled in any other way. You know, we had 400,000 people because we were going to space. NASA is one of the only government ent entities that you put $1 into it, it brings $8 back into the economy. So NASA has been able through, you know, all the technology it's developed that is now marketed to supply so many other things here on Earth. You know, most of the technology in the everyday cell phone, a lot of other just simple things, you know, Velcro or, you know, just little things that no one thinks about was either developed for the space program or by the space program. And so a lot of things that we have, we wouldn't even have if we weren't putting in the investment and pushing ourselves of wanting to go into space. Um, and with the idea of traveling to Mars, you know, Mars is that first step in learning to colonize and on a new planet because in the long run, you know, we know that the sun will burn out. That's how all suns run through their course of life. You know, we have never seen, you know, a sun just kind of burn forever. So we know eventually uh, one day the Earth will not be livable anymore. And so in order for humans to want to continue to survive and continue to face new things, we're going to have to travel to new places, and it's going to have to be something that we address at some point. Obviously, Mars is not going to be the ultimate savior or anything. You know, Mars revolves around the same sun. But um, Mars is just that first step in developing that technology and developing our space technology. So someday we are able to do that, and someday we are able to continue ourselves. And as we continue pushing ourselves, we're gaining so much new technology as well as income in our economy to benefit from that. So I'm curious. Um, in my research, I found that it could be more cost-effective to send things like robots up to other planets. So what do you think are the justifications for having 
humans out in the field in places like Mars? Yeah, so there obviously are many rovers, satellites, and all kinds of things that we have sent to Mars so far to start doing research. And the biggest issue with only having these robots on Mars is just kind of the time efficiency of it. So, for example, because of the distance on Mars, the time delay between Earth and Mars ranges between, you know, 15 to 30 minutes sometimes. And so if you tell a rover to move two feet forward, 30 minutes later it's going to hear to move two feet, then it's going to move two feet, and 30 minutes later you'll get the command back that it has successfully moved two feet. So in one hour we've done such a small movement. And so having to constantly do that task over and over and over again makes such small movements each time. And so all of the research that we are gaining from Mars, although it's useful, it is coming in quite slowly. Whereas with humans on Mars and having a crew there, you know, human is able to go out on the planet and say, hey, this rock looks interesting. Hey, let's bring a few of these samples back. Let's run around and see what we can collect. Let's bring it back and start doing some experiments with it. So humans are able to do, I think it's like, it's they can do, I think, a year's worth of a rover in just one hour on Mars. And so having people there is really going to just expedite all of the research and science that we want to accomplish there. You know, space is a new frontier. And I think about who owns the moon anyway, especially when we see multiple nations and now private interest actively gearing up and in some ways competing to go into outer space. And it makes me think of the International Space Treaty, which made guidelines for peaceful collaboration as we expand into space. What would you like to see included as we figure out how to best govern space exploration? Yeah, I think that as space exploration continues, it's basically just going to have to become a joint effort. I think if we want to keep, you know, especially peace in space, you know, obviously the International Space Station has worked well for so many years with so many different countries represented and so many different astronauts from all these countries have visited and contributed in some way. And I think that that same idea that has worked for us will have to continue once we start looking at going back to the moon and on to Mars. Um, And along with that, you know, we're actually starting to see so many more companies building up and so many more countries building up their space programs and, you know, their thoughts of going to the moon, going to Mars and that kind of thing. So I think that as all these countries start getting to that point of wanting to start going to the moon, I think the collaboration will then start to play in even more because we'll have obviously more people wanting to go to space and going uh, further into space. So I definitely think it will be, it will just have to rely on strong collaboration between the countries. When I give programs at the bottom of the canyon, I like to joke that I'm going to be the first park ranger on Mars at that bigger canyon. But it's really cool that you may be one of the first people to go out there and explore these wilderness areas. Do you have a place that you care about in space that you would think would be a good candidate for an international space park? Yeah, I think as we look 
for, you know, missions to Mars and also as we continue to go deeper into space, I think that there are going to be places in our solar system that we are going to want to preserve. Um, you know, I think, especially even looking back at our own planet, you know, Earth now has a lot of space junk around it just from all the satellites and all the stuff and rockets that we've sent up over the years. And so I think that is kind of, you know, a problem that we've kind of learned through the space program and something that we'll try to avoid, I think, as we continue traveling in space or not creating such a dense um, pollution of space junk. So I think, you know, as we look to go to Mars, you know, that's a big thing that I think we would love to see is just having quite a good amount of less pollution around the atmosphere of some of these planets. Um, and then also even on some of the planets, you know, like the canyon of Mars would be obviously a really awesome thing to preserve. Um, even, you know, different points in space, um, you know, that we have certain kind of measured out points in space that we think would be great to have like stationary like space stations so always like keeping those in mind for future ideas and future projects of what can actually come about in the space program so you've been through anti-gravity training what does it feel like to float in outer space kind of think about roller coaster rides because that's probably the most similar thing that we can related to to be honest it definitely is just that roller coaster feeling of like your butt coming off the seat just a little bit but it's just that feeling extended and it feels very weird that it's extended because you're so used to that roller coaster feeling of you know you come up for just a quick second but then you go back down but in this case you like come up a little bit and then you just kind of stay up for 20 seconds and your body's just like why aren't we going down and it's just all sort of disoriented. Um, so I definitely say that's the closest thing I can kind of pinpoint it to, but it is a pretty unique feeling. Um, I would definitely say, you know, for the sensing of microgravity, a lot of the time in the space program we use, you know, underwater or water in general to simulate microgravity because, you know, like your friends weigh less in the water and that kind of thing. But it's definitely just not quite the same feeling because I feel like when you're actually, like, on a microgravity flight, you kind of have this feeling in your stomach of you actually, you know, everything being lifted rather than in water. Everything's just a little bit lighter. Part of the International Space Treaty says that astronauts shall be envoys for all mankind. And that's a big responsibility. And it may be yours. And a couple of years, people would know your name if you're one of the first people on Mars. How would you like to be an example for the kids looking up to you? Yeah, I definitely think that space, you know, it has a lot and a huge impact on everyone who's gone there. You know, astronauts are able to look back at the Earth and you don't see borders, you don't see state lines, you don't see any lines, and you just see um, how fragile Earth really is. And I definitely think that, you know, the more people that we get to space, the more people that that we're going to have you know a big impact on how we see each other here on earth and so hopefully you know as future astronauts um, you know we strive to want to continue to inspire the next generation of kids we want them to continue to get interested in space and want to pursue those space dreams um, so hopefully we inspire them encourage them and just set great examples of wanting to encourage that collaboration of you know humans together um, and then also just, you know, hopefully teaching them to go after their dreams from a young age and never giving up on them. 
How would you like to see the science involved with the journey to Mars benefit our home planet? a lot of the tasks and things that we are going to be doing on Mars is going to come back and benefit so many things here on Earth. You know, a lot of the research that we're going to be doing at first is mainly just going to be learning more about Mars, you know, the makeup of the planet, its soils, rocks, the water on Mars, signs of bacterial life, its atmosphere. So basically just getting a full um, comprehensive overview of Mars and really the possibilities with that. You know, when looking at Mars, we could find resources that could be useful here on Earth, possibly even new resources um, that, you know, could help in new ways. Um, The other thing is, you know, once we find out what the potential is with Mars, there's the idea of Mars must be like a second home for us to have. So looking down the road, if population were to continue to grow, um, you know, it's possible that we could have Mars as a second planet to live on, which would definitely help with, you know, kind of managing the population and resources Um, and then just kind of in the long run Mars is going to kind of be that first step in us learning how we can go to a new planet colonize it live there for a period of time come back to earth or possibly even live there for a longer period of time and that's going to come in handy once we start even further space exploration. As more and more astronauts share new visions from outer space, how is space changing our priorities back at home? The Pew Center of Research conducted a survey of the American people, asking them, what do they want NASA to do today? The third thing the public wanted was to conduct basic scientific research and expand our knowledge of the universe. The second ask of NASA was to monitor asteroids or other objects that could potentially hit the Earth. But the public has spoken. The number one thing that they want NASA to do in space is to go up and monitor the Earth's climate system. It shows that the public is really concerned about climate change and how we're taking care of our planet back at home. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. You know, scientists coming along and saying, you know, we want to not just go there, but we want to learn and make the most of that experience. To me, it gets, it gets to the core of us as humans that we're explorers. We want to learn as much as we can about places. And there's the human drama of exploring. You know, not those 12 people walked on the moon, but 400,000 people helped them get there. And then the rest of the world, or much of the rest of the world, you know, stood by, you know, dumbfounded watching, just exhilarated to see, you know, fellow member of our species walking in another world. That spirit of human exploration that was so important to the moon missions is something that you get at the Grand Canyon. Um, they're, they're similar in that way. I mean, look at the Grand Canyon and their rocks, but they're mostly different rocks than you get on the moon, but it still conjures up that idea of, of 
of exploration. You know, everybody who hikes down the Grand Canyon, especially the first time, is like the astronauts going to the moon, discovering a new world, and um, and 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 trying to put their place in that world. You know, I don't know. The first time you hike to Plateau Point or hike to the rim and back and get back up on top, um, you know, you look around and you think about how it all happened, what it all means, and what's your place in it. And it's a similar thing, you know, the astronauts going to the moon. Well, it's time for us to blast off. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to us here at Grand Canyon National Park. This is Ranger Melissa. And I am Ranger Kate. This is Behind the Scenery. Scenery.